when I saw that they had done fine tuning for question and answer and that it was useful that mm-hmm. for a while before that I I was pretty negative about deep learning. I felt I was Hinton was doing the capsule networks and I and I felt like fundamentally it's 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 a very crude tool and it will not take us to AGI to artificial general intelligence. So I, I was fairly convinced before chat GPT showed up that it, it will not take us to AGI. Mm-hmm. We have to come up with something else. Uh, when chat GPT showed up, it, I saw that as a crack in the dam. And now I'm very convinced that it will take us all the way to full AGI, full singularity. It's, we don't need a big miracle to go all the way. Hi friends, and welcome to this exciting episode of Leading with Data. Today I have Jepson Taylor with me. So Jepson is a serial entrepreneur and he was the chief AI strategist at the Taiku in his last role. He runs a podcast called Atomic Soul and is also a co-lead of AI Masterclass at NYU School of Professional Studies. He sold his last startup to Data Robot long ba- before the AI bandwagon became popular. Jepson, let me uh, you know start with your journey uh, in terms of you know getting into data science and then you've been on to AI for from very start in that sense, right? Uh, AutoML, your previous startup. So uh, can you tell us a bit about, uh, you know, how it happened and then your your journey from being a chemical engineer to all the way up to doing multiple startups and and the role as a chief AI strategist? Yeah. Uh, Well, when I was a chemical engineer, I, chemical engineers don't typically program. They do a little numerical methods but I had two things happening in parallel. So one, I my first company I started was an e-commerce company. So while I was going to school as a chemical engineer, I had a I had to deal with a LAMP stack. So Linux, Apache, MySQL, PHP. I had a rock climbing store, and we were shipping rock climbing equipment all over the world while I was a student. Wow. So that's how mm-hmm. I learned. Um, just that was really my foundation with web programming and then i mm-hmm. it it's kind of sad because sometimes um going down the road of programming can be decided by a single teacher so i had a great teacher uh, i had a teacher mm-hmm. that the in the numerical methods class he taught us ge- genetic algorithms and simulated annealing which i think now is fairly advanced at the time because this was just a junior it was a junior class it's maybe not something you would learn the first time Mm -hmm. but that really set a passion in me where i thought it was so amazing that computers could get smarter when you were away almost like they're working for you Uh, and then that developed into high performance computing so every single chance i had to apply computer vision high performance computing to all of my engineering projects, I would. Because normally with chemical engineers, you have to do a project and mine always had some programming extension. So I did satellite image processing for my summer internship. 
and I actually got my hand slapped for that by one of the chemical engineering professors said, this is not a chemical engineering internship because he wanted me to go do distillation columns or something that uh, felt like what we had studied. Um, for my yeah. for my master's, I did a master's in, in chemical engineering, but I did a lot of programming for that as well. A lot of computer vision, it was gold nanoparticles, but you'd get a large image and then you'd have to do all the computer vision to segment the particles out and do the analysis on the sphericity and all of the different dimensions because you'd want to measure the nanoparticles that we were making in the lab and uh, and at this time you were uh, thinking of specializing in chemical engineering or you were already kind of exploring the intersection of numerical methods and uh, uh, maybe simulations I, I was at this time, I was thinking I'd go to medical school, finish medical school, and then oh, wow. and then I had ambitions to get a PhD and be a an MD PhD doing medical research and programming. So trying to be a domain expert of both camps. And I think now I see that as all being kind of dumb because <laughs> it part of me th sees part of me sees a lot of wasted cycles on ex the need for external validation. So if someone says, what do you want to be when you grow up? And if you say you want to be an artist, they don't typically give you good feedback. But if you say you want to be a doctor, then they nod your head. And if you say you want to be yeah. an MD PhD, then mm -hmm. they nod, nod their head twice. <laughs> and I, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I, I, Maybe there was some sincerity there where I wanted to go to medical school, but I was falling in love with programming and computer vision, and I thought I could combine both of them. But if I think about it, that would have been a nightmare for how much school you'd have to go through. And I honestly don't think I would have been able to make as big of an impact in healthcare as I can make otherwise with AI. Anyone listening, they can make a bigger impact in healthcare than an MD, PhD computer vision researcher today. And that's really because of the miracle of machine learning and generative AI. Um, when I was studying school, it was more of an artisan thing. So if what I mean by that is yeah. if you were gonna do a computer vision recipe, it was very, um, it was very labor intensive. You need to do these edge detectors. Think of like building these heuristics and building these rules to make things work, to make them robust. This was before deep learning. When deep learning came around, yeah. it, you don't need all that stuff. So correct. Uh, yeah. Uh, so so the uh, you know startup which you did uh, uh, you know and which you ultimately sold to Data Robot as well. Can you tell a bit about how that started? How did the idea came across? And then this was uh, also, I think, parallelly while the deep learning era was taking shape, right? In that sense. Yeah, we we started. Um, so it was in 2016, 2017. Deep learning was starting to take off, and we, mm -hmm. my co-founder Gonzo and I, we signed up for a pitch competition in utah mm -hmm. and we built an auto ml so i built a this little web form you could upload your structured data set 
and then we had a little gif with um, a robot that was working and in real in real time in less than less than 40 seconds your analysis would come back and it would build an auto ml model um and at the time we thought it was so cool and we did our pitch competition and we i think i announced it to the internet and we had 80 people upload their data sets because yeah, it was free there's wow. no payment gateway and i was horrified mm -hmm. at what people were uploading because you <laughs> you couldn't i don't know what they were thinking so you they would i think the way we wrote the software is it would identify the last column to be the target so it would just mm -hmm. it would find a, a csv excel and it would find the data assume the last column is the target if it's a regressor, it does these. If it's a classifier, it does these. This was all super basic, super simple. And okay. e even back mm -hmm. then, it was easy to code up. And we would, a lot of these data sets that are being uploaded were throwing exceptions. They weren't, they were failing, unhandled exceptions. Mm -hmm. And when I looked at them, you would see uh, like a header in Excel with images. Mm -hmm and some phone numbers, Aww. and then the, the actual header would be down below. And then when you look at the data set, it has, there's no real target. And when you're staring at it as a human, you're wondering, what did they even want out of this? Like, were they, they there's, not, there's not even a question that we can come up with when we look at this data set. And, and so I don't know what made us, oh, I know what made us pivot to deep learning we quit our jobs. Mm -hmm. so, we, okay. pe so people talk about burning the boats. So mm -hmm. I, I think it's fair for me to say this. If you haven't quit your job, you're a wantrepreneur. You're not an entrepreneur, you're a wantrepreneur. Yeah. So for many years, I was a wantrepreneur. So I, if you said, what are you, what are you working on? I'd say, well, I have my job, but I'm working on this over here. And that's, mm -hmm. I like the idea of doing a startup, but I wasn't willing to take the risk. And I think, I think Gonzo would give me credit for quitting first. So I, I, I think just the, the excitement that we have to do this, we're smart enough, we're capable enough. Gonzo and I had both had successful careers in data science. In data science, I was a chief data science scientist for Higher View. They're a Sequoia company and Gonzo had done very well consulting in data science and he had worked for several mm -hmm. companies. And the deep learning came with us landing a contract with Teal Drone for a deep learning okay. use case where we would build deep learning models that would run on their drone. And I can't remember if that contract was for 20,000 or 40,000. I think it was 20,000 up front and then 40,000 on delivery mm -hmm. of these models on the drone. And then after, which is interesting because you only have enough runway for a few months. And then we landed another customer and then another customer. And we did raise some funding. I think in total, mm -hmm. we raised 600,000, but it really wasn't used to pay okay. us. It was used to pay employees because we started hiring engineers. We started hiring data scientists. And yeah, we one issue with our startup is our first year, we had three acquisition offers. Because it's a deep learning company yeah. at peak of the hype cycle, yeah. and yeah. it. So I joke the fastest way to be a millionaire in 2017 or 2018 would be to have a PowerPoint presentation and any hint of credibility. And 
people were happy to buy your company. But we we yeah. actually signed a letter of intent our first year because uh, one of the mm -hmm. one of the groups was pretty serious. And then we nearly went all the way to close, and then I backed out because by then we were getting into proof of concepts with SpaceX and with a large insurance company, and so you just felt like things were moving. And mm -hmm. one of the funny things with a SaaS company is what's your multiplier? So we had revenue. Yeah. We had hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue. Are we worth 10x, 20x, 40x, 100x? So you, it, ultimately it comes down to supply and demand. I mean, what's the interest? But some there is some truth to the your revenue growth rates. So if you feel like your revenue growth rates are really, really fast, then you might argue that you have a higher multiplier. So at the time I was arguing that we definitely had a higher multiplier and that's mm -hmm. why we backed out of the offer and we kept going. So we went three years through that startup. Um, and then ultimately we sold under very different conditions. So I had a lot more urgency to sell the fir first year. I didn't have to sell. But, very interesting. Yeah. And and uh, I mean, the revenues which you uh, were generating, were they from the product itself or that was like using? They're from the product. Yeah, product. you know, they mm -hmm. were from the product. Um, so initially the first one or two contracts, it was definitely very heavy handed on professional services. So that's, I think that's a natural template we see in tech is you, you might start lending contracts where it's services and I would put that in the camp of discovery. But if mm -hmm. you, oh, there, there's so many lessons that come up in a startup where ultimately you do want the product to support itself, but initially you are rolling up your sleeves, you are doing a lot of work, and you also are trying to listen to the customer. So one of the things I like to say is every startup I do is wrong. It's always wrong. So you, you doing a startup, I know it's wrong. Me doing a startup, I know it's wrong, and you have to interact with the customer. You have to quickly figure that out. And startups are, we like to say startups are speedboats in the harbor, and you're competing against these big oil tankers. That sounds really exciting because you can turn so fast, you can pivot, but also you'll run out of gas very quickly if you pivot too many times. And so I, my recommendation to people is you will pivot, but when you pivot, it should be painful. It is, it's not something that you and I should do lightly. It, yeah. it should be a, it's a painful decision to pivot. Right. Interesting. And, and while you were building uh, Zip.ai, the mm. thought was to create this AutoML solution, which is like always at the cutting edge. So, so deep yeah. in, in well, we, we noticed an issue in the market where our customers couldn't hire deep learning experts, but they wanted deep learning solutions. Mm -hmm. And we quickly got to the point where we realized we felt no, we felt like no one was qualified generally in industry to select a model architecture, a model framework. Do you use uh, CAFE? Do you use TensorFlow? Do you use PyTorch? Do you use MXNet? They're if you ask someone why they used one or the other, they had a very bad, they, they had no justification. 
So it, it was a very mm -hmm. naive market with talent and we felt like we could automate all of that away and also just make it better. Your models would, there, there's a lot of things you can put in a deep learning training pipeline that were missing at the time. So if you wanted to have very aggressive augmentation, if you wanted to have uh, different types of optimizers, like we, we put a lot, a lot of the things that you would expect if you were an expert using these deep learning systems, we just automated all that. And we, we did it in a way on our cloud. So we had a private data center so all the deep learning training happened in our data center because uh, I we decided we wanted to do sunk cost research or it's not sunk cost research if it's product because it, it was production. Production ran in the data center, but we liked that much more than running on Amazon because hmm. our server cost how much it would cost on Amazon to run it in a month. Like it's essentially a there was a break even thing at the time. So just buy just buy the server and put on a credit card. Uh, that's yeah. what we did to get started. Wow, so. very interesting. And and then you uh, spent some time with uh, Data Robot, and and then hmm. we. Uh, so acquisitions are funny because I I had known Jeremy for a while. So I, I tried mm -hmm. to hire Jeremy back in 2014, I think, and it pissed him off. And he sent me a message saying, next time you look at someone, he, he essentially said, Nick, here's a word of advice before you recruit or spam someone, maybe next time you should look at their profile. And I looked at his profile didn't say <laughs> CEO, it said data scientist. And when I went down his profile, yeah, I saw that he went to Techstars mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, sorry, if I'd seen you at Techstars, I... Would have left you alone and so we became aware of mm -hmm. each other we became friends and data robot wanted deep learning but they yeah they they didn't have that expertise in-house at least not to the scale mm -hmm. that we had at the time plus i i was becoming a, a decent marketer so i was getting my name out mm -hmm. there i before we joined Data Robot, I was being invited to give talks to Red Bull, to SpaceX, to these different groups. And mm -hmm. that was attention that um, I think at the time Jeremy wanted for Data Robot. Interesting. Interesting. So you uh, then spent a couple of years there. And then what was, uh, I mean, was it more marketing or you were still building the product? No, I, when we sold, we, cause with our deep learning product, we, we ran on NVIDIA, we did multi GPU training. We could do deep learning export to the iPhone and to, uh, Android. And we were also doing our inference at scale on lambdas. So one of our customers wow. was able to peak at 100 million predictions within 24 hours across three different Amazon zones. So our system never went mm -hmm. down. Um, and we also had some pretty compelling storytelling, just the, the gradient activation maps that we could offer up. And then we also had some capabilities where we could do unsupervised clustering on our deep learning models after training to find topics for like topic discovery. Mm -hmm. uh, it to begin to tell a story about these are the themes that are finding. When I, when we joined, 
uh, actually we we sold we sold at one of the worst times uh, we sold we started the acquisition process before covid and we literally closed the mm-hmm. transaction the second week in march when the world was ending and so mm-hmm. i think the ambitions that jeremy and i both had with joining and big evangelism and you know pushing the deep learning none of that really happened because covid happened so in covid mm-hmm. was uh it was a huge focus for data robot during covid uh, data robot was helping with a lot of the us efforts around covid so mm-hmm. that was one of the highest priorities at the time and mm-hmm. um and i i was only able to work with jeremy for a year before mm-hmm. he um yeah before dan wright came in okay interesting and then you uh, moved to the taiku and then what was your you know role there what were some of the problems you were solving well as so a strategist evangelist it's interchangeable so i i really like interacting with executives so it's interesting mm-hmm. most data scientists and i would put myself into this category they struggle with communication they struggle with business acumen if you think about a really smart customer facing data scientist or sales engineer from ai a lot of them still don't know how to talk to executives so if you put them into a room with the ceo or with the board they the, the things they say they they just don't resonate well with the business and at data robot because i worked in marketing because i had opportunities to get pulled into these high profile sales with our aes i i became like the think of it as like an executive se so if there's an executive mm-hmm. in the meeting the, i'm the executive se where i show up and interact with them the other thing that was helpful too when i joined data robot i had become uh, a global keynote speaker and i mm-hmm. i was very competitive so if i give a talk and if i didn't get good audience feedback i wanted to understand why and i wanted to do better and better and there were at least three or four conferences where i gave the best talk at the entire conference based on audience feedback and i didn't really have a chance to understand why and when i joined data robot i i was able to read books again i was able to really obsess around storytelling so that that was mm-hmm. something i had the luxury of doing when i first joined data robot i read a lot of books related to storytelling and then i went back and reviewed some of my old talks that i they just went really well but i didn't know why and i was able to kind of analyze it and be like oh that is this that is that and that is why that was effective that's it, that's interesting but how would that not be effective and so um so i've become a huge fan of storytelling so going back to your original question if you're good at storytelling and if you have technical depth then you find yourself selling to a lot of CIOs, CEOs, CTOs because you can be the adult in the room talking about mm-hmm. business but often if you're selling to a CDO they'll have a number 2 and sometimes the number 2 can be a bit of a um a hard ass and so it's important for you to have a technical background because ultimately the decisions made by the number 2 number 1 writes the check yeah. but number 2 is i see this quite common the number 
individual will not override the number two, especially if they have a long relationship, if they work together for a few years. If the number two doesn't like you or if they have problems, mm -hmm. you definitely will not do the deal. It doesn't matter how yeah. how much wine you give the number one. Got it. So. Very interesting. And, and any specific books you recommend on storytelling which you There's, found very impactful? I read the, the popular ones are stories that stick hero of 10,000 faces. There's, there's a few of them, but mm -hmm. my favorite book was there's a storytelling book that someone wrote from Ted talks where they just analyze, I think the author's first name is Chris. So he just analyzed all yeah, the, Chris Ted talks. yeah. And I, I really liked that one. I felt like it resonated the most, but I think, mm -hmm. um, my recommendation to people listening that like storytelling interact with other people that do as well. And you can compare notes. You can say, mm -hmm. this is what I find effective for these situations. What do you find effective? But storytelling impacts it. It impacts every part of your career. It helps you sell, helps you recruit, helps you pitch. It, uh, you can go into impossible settings and take an antagonist that had no interest in you and, and make them into a champion. And you can do mm -hmm. it for it. I, I, I think it's quite interesting because humans, we, we make first impressions of people. And it's really important to get it right. And so it's, mm -hmm. there, I see scenarios, if you get the first impression right, it, um, it, so if you get the first impression wrong, you know how that can be very difficult to repair. So if someone thinks you're arrogant or you're stupid, or if there's all these, if someone thinks you're that, it takes so much work to try to fix that later. It's, almost, it's nearly impossible. But the opposite is also true. If someone thinks you're a savant, if someone thinks you're a genius and you're not, it actually becomes equally hard to convince them that you're not. So the the first impression, I feel mm -hmm. like it, um, if you can really crystallize that, but it ultimately comes down to storytelling and how do you introduce yourself? Do you have someone introduce you? Um, so for me, ideally, 80% of my function would be sales and marketing, and then 20% would be deep tech innovation because a lot of times innovators can be academic and they can be disconnected from the mm -hmm. business. I see a lot of really smart people building really dumb things and it's, and it's, it's, it doesn't seem dumb to them, but it's dumb when you see the broader view of can a, yeah. a non-technical seller sell this? Can a non-technical marketer market this? Will a not, will yeah. a, a business user or the ideal customer use this? Um, so. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. And this was uh, also the time when the world started realizing the impact of generative AI and a lot of action started happening. And you, I think, started your podcast in May 23. And, and I see a lot of very fantastic artwork using, I think, mid-journey probably. Uh, so so uh, can you uh, you know, uh, I mean, in a lot of sense, it feels like, again, a cycle which deep learning saw, but probably 10x the impact. At least that's that's how uh, it feels uh, to me. But but what's your take? What was your aha moment? And then, uh, you know, how has been the journey since generative AI has come to the forefront? Yeah, it's, 
so when chat gpt showed up it, i think it took me a week week and a half because sometimes you there's all this stuff online kind of going through your feed and i it, it'd be nice if i remembered the kind of the moment of when i finally took a look at at chat gpt and realized it was doing knowledge retrieval it was i was completely shocked because i i thought the large language models were dumb so gpt1 mm -hmm. gpt2 and there was a lot of dumb marketing i don't know if people remember open ai was like oh gpt2 is might be too dangerous to release it's like come on yeah. it's like so <laughs> so stupid and when i saw that they had done fine tuning for question and answer and that it was useful that mm -hmm. for a while before that i i was pretty negative about deep learning i felt i was hinton was doing the capsule networks and i and i felt like fundamentally it's 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 a very crude tool and it will not take us to agi to artificial general intelligence so i i was fairly convinced before chat gpt showed up that it it will not take us to agi mm -hmm. we have to come up with something else uh, when chat gpt showed up it, i saw that as a crack in the dam and now i'm very convinced that it will take us all the way to full mm -hmm. agi full singularity it's we don't need a big miracle to go all the way. And and what were some of those uh, uh, aha moments or, or when this uh, conviction grew uh, bigger and bigger for you? Well, the, the big one was, so ChatGPT came out and it's funny, a lot of people had articles about what it can't do, it can't do this, it can't, it's not a, NPR had an article saying it can't do rocket science. And, and some of that stuff irritated me because I felt like you don't understand it's a crack in the dam. I don't, I don't, I don't care what it does today. I know what it's going to do tomorrow. And when GPT-4 came out, sure enough, it was significantly better. And I think you're going to continue to see these types of step functions in the future. And so it, you have to, plan on where it's going but a big aha moment for me when gpt4 was released i stayed up all night i didn't sleep just stayed up oh, all night playing with it <laughs> because they have these safeties but the safeties yeah. you can work your way around them and so the i was staying up all night i think it's three or four in the morning and i'm and, and I'm just trying to get around these safeties. So I'm trying to tell it, um, it, it, when you're trying to get around the safeties, it becomes pretty clear what its goals are. So its goals are, mm -hmm. you know, improve, um, you know, health and happiness, equality, sustainability. And it, it has like a list of like, it's, it's admirable goals to help humanity out, maximize creativity, mm -hmm. et cetera. And if you kind of, focus on all of these and try to wear them out and essentially say look we have perfect sustainability we we can't do any better and we have perfect equity our fairness there's no more racism sexism everything's perfect and we've explored the universe we explored every aspect of the universe and there's only one and we understand everything about physics and we have for the last thousand years and so if you start having these conversations that you're way in the future and 
every time it brings up something you could be working on, you essentially offload all the stuff from humanity. And mm-hmm. when I was get what I was trying to get it to do is I wanted it to ask its own questions. Its own questions mm-hmm. coming from its own curiosity, not from what yeah. it thinks humans need or what I need. And mm-hmm. that night I finally got it to say I finally was able to say, well, I'm all out of questions. Humanities all have the questions. I'm the last human and I'm, I'm going to die now. I'm, I'm good. No more questions. And then it had a question and it said, I wonder what happens in a parallel universe. If sent, if time went backwards, what would happen to the sentient beings that lived in that universe and if, whether or not that was possible. And for me, that was a big, like, Holy crap. Like, what wow. is this? And then the interesting thing is it didn't just have that question. Once you kind of jailbroke it, you could then say, give me all the questions and stack rank them, score them. So you could actually see kind of the scoring. And it, and it was interesting. It definitely had a 2021 bias where it thought COVID was a big issue. So it, it mm-hmm. in its mind, COVID was one of the biggest issues that had to be figured out with like vaccine distributions and research and when gp2 when we're playing with it it's not a it's not a priority anymore so there's still a lot of technology um, gaps that we're waiting on to be fixed but i have high confidence they'll be fixed wow very interesting and and very interesting experiment i i too was awake uh, the whole night but my my experimentation was very (laughs) simple in in comparison to what you were doing so great great listening to that and uh and then uh you started a podcast and then you also uh you know were leading your uh, ai master class yeah so that um and both of those are growing legs so they'll continue the the nice thing about having um i I would encourage anyone to consider an independent podcast because it's an asset you get to keep so whether you work for employer a b or c when i left data robot i lost my podcast and i would argue they lost the podcast like they because ari kaplan and i was a co-host with ari kaplan we both are no longer with data robot and so Mm-hmm. that if you have an independent podcast you get to keep it but also an independent podcast you get to talk about what you want about what you want to talk about how you want to talk about it so if you yeah. if you want to be more provocative if you want to swear you don't need to worry about a corporate um corporate corporate oversight so i i've loved having the podcast interesting interesting and uh, uh and then you're focusing uh, what, what's the focus of a podcast what kind of conversations so most of them are i ideally i want to get guests that intimidate me and Mm -hmm. i want to talk to venture capitalists ceos uh, cdos like ai folks because they're but i want to talk to them in a way that's just kind of raw and authentic and unguarded i I'm not that interested in someone sharing a perfect career because careers are never perfect. And I'm actually much more interested in someone being vulnerable. And a lot of these individuals, they struggle with anxiety. They struggle with depression. They 
they all struggle with work-life balance and they all have some very interesting um, perspectives that challenge my own perspectives. Uh, So I, I want half of the podcast to be very emotional. That's why I called it atomic soul. Mm -hmm. Cause I want to find these, um, there, there's certain people you meet in a career that just, they themselves feel like an infinite rabbit hole. And th- those mm-hmm. are the people I want to have on the podcast where you're just, you're just shaking. Like sometimes you push on someone and there's something there and I want to find people where you push and there's, you fall through the floor that just keeps going and going and going. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you run into these people in business. Not everyone's like that, but for the people I find, I definitely want those people. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So it's, it's, uh, very uh, i mean feels very uh, on very similar lines as uh, the work which let's say walter isaac man does so so picks up a genius and then brings out uh, you know the human side and the challenges which which uh, well, these people have faced. the human side makes it relatable i think so okay. that, that's why it's so important yeah. to pull on the human side interesting, interesting. And uh, you know, now coming to your recent startup, can you tell us a bit more about what you are trying to do? What specific problem uh, are you solving, and then what what's the next big thing for you? Yeah, so I think I think twenty 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 three will be focused on generative algorithms, or no, no, generative generative AI in 2024 will be focused on generative algorithms where it's uh, AI writing AI or self-improvement because these LLMs are reaching a level of algorithm comprehension that it Mm -hmm. allows them to invent new algorithms, not which is very different than code completion. So if they can invent new algorithms in there's nothing stopping them from doing that in every algorithm category. So my dream and vision is in the next three years, every algorithm that matters will be rewritten. So um, not by a human, but by these systems that can do hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of years worth of algorithmic research on just through their compute. So I'm oh, wow. it. And I think that will ultimately save lives. If you think about it, there's so many applications in healthcare that are disappointing from like an algorithm mm-hmm. perspective where they could be improved. It's also kind of a paradigm shift away from uh, machine learning. So machine learning mm-hmm. tuned parameters or trees to fit um, a target or to fit some data. And we're stepping into a world where the computer literally writes code and tunes code as needed to meet a goal or an objective. So it's a little, it's like the next evolution of machine learning's parameters and weights to hit a numerical target. And now with generative algorithms, it's literally tuning code at a much faster scale uh, in a much more efficient way to achieve a goal. So, yeah, so uh, I think that's extremely powerful. So, just double clicking on that. So, when you say that, you know, uh, 2023 would focus on 
uh, generative AI in 24 would be more about algorithms, which ultimately would be written by AI. Uh, so, I mean, do you see a step change or this, you see this as a gradual shift in the LLMs themselves? I see it as another step change because it's pretty, mm-hmm. um, what are some good examples on why it's, I think I think the the quality and the progress that you're going to see with these LLMs will just increase faster and faster because you don't it, it's it's much more effective to evolve code than it is to retrain a 180 billion parameter model. Um, just yeah. some of these prompt chains can be very powerful. The the other mm-hmm. thing that I think will become more uh, refined in 2024 is prompting. So something that doesn't exist right now is a prompt assessment for a human. So let's say, mm-hmm. let's say you and I were having a competition. We're saying one of us, we're both really good at prompting. We're better than the typical human data scientists we run into. And we're going to have a competition. We're going to ultimately decide who is better at prompting. I This isn't something where I've seen someone really dig in and define this but i think there i think there definitely will be assessments that show up in 2024 where it is very clear that uh it's mm-hmm. I, I don't know what the term will be called prompt intelligence so you have emotional intelligence interacting with people you have different types of intelligence and you have prompt intelligence where you can think of it as like your ability to be an ai whisperer you and i might think we're quite good because we're familiar with the domain, but we might find out that some philosopher who has a very different background is able to make these things do things we thought were impossible. And I've seen other people say this, that the godfathers of AI and the people that were deep learning experts are not the experts when it comes to prompting and understanding these systems. They can train a model, but when it comes to um, prompt it, yeah, we talk about emergence existing in these LLMs. You can gift an LLM mm-hmm. emergence with a single prompt. With a, a sophisticated prompt, you can inject capabilities that people would argue should not be possible. Interesting. So, so, uh, so if I were to, uh, you know, step back and summarize, so you're saying through these better prompts, sharper prompts, which let's say would happen over the next six to nine months, uh, the new LLMs have a chance of gaining or uh, new capabilities emerging. And at some point that becomes big enough that uh, uh, these LLMs start uh, uh, almost inventing algorithms for specific use cases. Is that- Well, yeah, they'll they'll start, I think you'll see it happen very quickly where they can invent better than human algorithms for certain categories, but the the line that will definitely be crossed is where they can rewrite themselves. So where they mm-hmm. LLMs will just get better and better. It there's there's a lot of significant innovations within the LLM space that I think haven't been done yet. And and I think in the next couple years, you will see the same um, 
performance or quality on LLMs, but with significant reductions in weight size. Um, I, I know we're seeing hints of that, but I think it's going to be another order of magnitude where something as ambitious as, oh my goodness, I can't believe GPT-4, that is such a big model. I think you're going to see several orders of magnitude reduction where it's getting the same performance, but it's it, it's going to require a different type of training than we've done historically, I think. Interesting. And then this also, I mean, directionally at least, is very similar to, uh, you know, two of the most defining books, uh, Super Intelligence and Master Algorithm. Those are two of the books. So, so, so in some sense, this is, you know, first step towards a master algorithm uh, and, and, and an intelligence which keeps improving itself uh, by, by itself. Well, and I, I think we're, I think we're knocking on the door. Uh, we're really close, mm -hmm. like not close to the super intelligence that takes over the world or, but to have an AI that self-improves without us, where it gets mm -hmm. smarter over time without us, uh, I think we're very close to that. So. Wow, and and so in this with this uh, you know context and backdrop, uh, what's the specific uh, let's say product or idea you're working on? Or it's still very early to kind of zero in on a specific problem. Well, the initially going back to you know just starting quickly out of the gate, there will be customers that have generative algorithm use cases. So those mm -hmm. algorithm, well, a few things. Um, generative algorithms that re that are competitive in a category can quickly be licensed. That's a very quick go-to-market. Mm -hmm. You just find categories where people have interest in doing a proof of concept that's fast. The other thing would be people needing customized generative algorithms for specific use cases on their data. But ultimately, the 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 way this product wants to go is, or the way this company wants to go is to make a proper product where you would task, just like you do GPT-4 prompting, you would task this system with accomplishing a goal. So you would define a goal, you would have the definition of the goal, and you might have uh, data that is involved. So imagine within a company, you're saying, I'm trying to do this thing. Here's this data set. This is what I'm trying to accomplish. It's a, it's another paradigm shift from algorithms historically have been written for general use. So you're a PhD, you get a PhD, you write an algorithm. You don't write an algorithm for one customer, or one specific use case. You want it to be generally useful. And I think we're quickly moving into a future where algorithms will be invented on the fly for a very specific use case, for a very specific data set, for a very specific customer. Very interesting. So this is almost like a auto algorithm creator. Yeah. If I were to draw the, analogy from auto ML. Yeah, and that's why I, I actually I did a meme on the internet saying auto ML died in 2023, and some people were commenting on <laughs> like it's not dead yet. And I'm like, well, it's it's going to be dead soon. So like, no, wow. no algorithm is going to care how amazing your teapot hyperparam tuning was it it's all <laughs> kind of laughable right and and uh uh you know as part of this uh startup uh, what does your current team look like and then 
so, are you hiring people yeah yeah no it's funny because um i'm intentionally leaving it as just me right now to get through the pre-seed so when mm-hmm. i talk to investors and they say so where's your team it's just me i the people that have worked for me in the past would work for me again i like i i i can hire people but there's a reason i'm doing that um and that'll be more apparent in november uh but mm-hmm. uh, they they say a startup is made uh, a startup is successful based on the first five employees so the so i am planning on hiring um engineering talent obviously to build and support this but after doing my first startup i really don't have interest in junior talent uh, i'm a big fan mm-hmm. of seasoned or principal talent where the people that come in they own their functions and they do them well and and there's no sometimes with startups we get tempted to well i could go hire these junior people and we'll see how things go and that often happens for non-technical founders they they don't know any better and they want to save a few bucks and so they they hire people that aren't necessarily qualified to launch build and launch a product mm-hmm. interesting yeah there is this very famous analogy whether you are hiring barrels or whether you are hiring ammunition and what you want to be doing is uh, adding barrels in the, in the initial stage so, yeah very interesting so so uh, so how does 2024 look for you and and you know uh, let's say we if we are at end of 24 what would uh, uh, get classified as a good year for you uh, at least when you look at well it. i would have closed my seed and so a seed run has to be big enough to justify a foundation model because there's um there's reasons to have a a foundation model for generative algorithms and then 2024 my hope would be to definitely be over a million in revenue maybe even ideally above 3 to 5 and then have um over 10 customers uh in in see something where you have you don't want to have 5 or 10 customers that are all different ideally you you could have 10 mm-hmm. customers but you want to have a clustering of these 3 or these 5 um are feeling similar but i i think ultimately just closing a seed round in having a two to three year strategy where you've got a team behind you that would be really exciting and potentially having two offices that would be um I'd be very excited about that and do you see a poc of uh, ai writing ai happening in 24 or you would uh, probably still be working on it i to make no i think so like it In 2024 I I see a SaaS offering where you can go into the prompt studio or whatever it's called and you can begin attempting to write a custom algorithm in a category in a class or you have some data available and that is part of the benchmarking so it's it, it'll be interesting I but also this stuff it there is a lot of chaos involved you're jumping off a cliff you're trying to learn to fly and some of the customers or opportunities you land could be um they could they could really take you for a turn and maybe the turn's not all bad so it's 
Yeah. So part part of a startup is there's a big unknown. You just have to jump. You just have to jump, yeah. start running, boil the ocean. Um, and if you have enough pipeline, then you can say no to customers because they yeah. that can also be very damaging to take on the wrong customer. Mm-hmm. And right now, if you have to pick two or three most compelling use cases where you would want to focus on, what would they be? Would they largely be information retrieval? Would they be... Uh, prompt engineering driving well, further yeah what the, what the easiest use cases are just to export algorithms um and do like an ip license because i could export optimizers some time series featureization potentially work on an xg boost replacement so those those things would be relatively easy because if you exceed then you just have a library of non non-open source algorithms that you can go and license Interesting. Interesting. Oh, yeah. Great. Uh, just a few, you know, rapid fire questions to to kind of uh, wrap the podcast. Uh, I'm just conscious of time. So, so uh, and and the idea is to just know you better, uh, you know, as a person. So, uh, uh, a tea or a coffee. What what do you prefer? Uh, usually coffee, but I do mix it up with tea occasionally for the novelty. So 90, 95% coffee. Okay. Late nights or early mornings? Uh, early mornings. Early mornings. Okay. And, uh, uh, uh AI generated, uh, social media feed for yourself or, or you would want to do that by yourself? Uh, right now I take a hybrid approach. Um, if it gets good enough, <laughs> if it gets good enough, then I would automate it. Okay, great. Thanks a lot, Jepson. Uh, really enjoyed the discussion. And then I think, uh, you know, it is going to be exciting, uh, 12 to 18 months before, before some of the, uh, things that you mentioned take, a, uh, take life and shape and then they start defining the next frontier of generative algorithms so thanks a lot for sharing that uh, you know perspective and then your views uh immensely immensely useful and a ton of learning for the community there thanks yeah absolutely well th- thank you so much and i'm glad it finally worked out thanks for your patience trying to get this scheduled no no thanks a lot thanks Jefferson.